Most of the crew wanted nothing further to do with Ellsworth and sailed home to Norway. A skeleton crew operating under Magnus Olsen took the Wyatt Earp to sea to chase the rats overboard, ousting over a hundred from the ship before returning to Montevideo. Miss Piggy, having survived the Southern Ocean, Antarctica and the Rat Plague, went to a butcher and the four remaining Norwegians settled in for the winter to await further instructions and to avoid eating pork products. Wilkins wanted nothing more to do with Ellsworth, but remained under contract. He responded to Suzanne's insinuations in a blunt manner that I entirely approve of, and which leaves me surprised he put up with her bullshit in the first place. He didn't care what people said about him. He was being paid to help someone do something, and he was going to see it through. Likely it helped him along that righteous path that there wasn't much money about for explorers while the depression dragged on, and Ellsworth, twat that he was, at least paid top dollar for the experts he wanted in his corner. Suzanne's pregnancy, whether real and miscarried, or a phantom conjured to give Sir Hubert some stick, came to nothing. The Wilkinses remained childless throughout their marriage. Sir Hubert dispatched cinefilm negatives to Paramount Pictures, but with poor weather preventing filming through most of the trip, and most of the interesting stuff happening in an aircraft Sir Hubert didn't fly in, and with the crew unwilling to explore in a sufficiently theatrical manner as to make for a good edit of those things that did happen, there wasn't much to make of the cinematic record of the Ellsworth Transantarctic Expedition as it stood to date. Ellsworth reported on his expeditions directly to President Roosevelt at a White House tea. When asked if he intended returning south, Ellsworth expressed uncertainty. He spent most of the northern summer at Lensburg, but Mary Louise and her mother stayed in his Tuscan villa in Fiesole. Because if you're not going to fuck, you might as well not fuck in opulent style somewhere sunny and fun, rather than a gloomy castle full of your dead father-in-law's knickknacks and memories, while your husband moons about like the ghost of a nobody. John Neville Wheeler, head of the North American Newspaper Alliance, tried to convince Ellsworth to quit. You'll lose your life, Lincoln. Try something else, something easier. Ellsworth rallied to his cause on this spur, later writing or allowing written under his name, there are some men who were born to champion lost causes, and I am one, perhaps. I was not to be defeated. I would cross Antarctica by air. Hindsight bias is a many wondrous thing. Read Jeff Powter's We Cannot Fail, The Dark Psychology of Heroic Adventure, for some idea of how many people have spouted this sort of nonsense and gone on to die horribly in similar endeavours. Almost everyone over the age of 30 can come up with some story of dogged perseverance in attempting to achieve some goal or other in the face of danger and setbacks, but these stories are only meaningful if you compare and contrast them with the stories of the people who died in equivalent circumstances, and those narratives mostly don't exist because the people who might give them voice died not being defeated in their attempt to achieve X. If Lincoln Ellsworth failed to pass through any of the narrow gates of fate I'm about to recount, we'd read his words in an extra chapter in Jeff Powder's book. 
even Robert Falcon Scott wasn't defeated until he was. Unable to convince Ellsworth to chuck the project, unwilling to go home to Susan's indifference, and, most importantly, unable to find anything else meaningful to do, Wilkins began preparing for the third consecutive Austral summer trying to launch the transcontinental flight. Ellsworth got in touch to state he wanted two pilots on staff this coming season, so that if one balks at the opportunity to fly into the history books, the other could step in. He contacted Balkan, but the Norwegian wanted no further part in the project. Stumped as to where to turn in order to find the world's second and third best living polar aviators, recall that Ben Arlson was dead. Wilkins' correspondence with Wilhelm S. Stephenson suggested he advertised through Canadian Airways, whose pilots either learnt to fly in high latitudes whether safely or died in the process. How you doing, Dave? How, how, you, how you doing? Huh? All good, thanks. Good. Sorry to... Never apologise oh, for doing your job. And kicking uh, snow all over you. That you can <laughs> apologise for. I'm going to head up top. I should stop here. Cool, cool. Nice and calm morning. Beautiful. Okay, see you in a bit. See ya. Uh, bridge, it will likely be after, uh, probably close to 1 o'clock. We're going to do uh, some final um, operational reconnaissance here after the excursion's over. So, uh, I'll pass this back by probably 12.15, but uh, we won't be finished, finished probably at <coughs> 1 o'clock over. Okay, thank you. Being bush pilots, they would also possess some degree of competence at repairing and maintaining aircraft. From the resulting applications, Wilkins selected British-born Canadian Herbert Hollick Kenyon, veteran of the Canadian Expeditionary Force and the Royal Flying Corps during the First World War, and pioneer of several airmail routes in Western Canada, and who took part in the eight-week search for the McAlpine Party, an overdue copper prospecting expedition out of Churchill that were eventually rescued by the Maud and also hired James Joe, also Red, Limeburner, a high-latitudes mine supply pilot who flew miners, explosives, machinery and oxen to the mining sites otherwise made inaccessible by mountains and lakes. Hollick Kenyon's application acknowledged his being a contact navigator, but added that he'd read the theory of bubble sextant use and didn't think it posed much of a challenge, which anyone who's tried to take a measurement with a sextant will laugh at long and loud. Wilkins wrote to Bird requesting information about the state of Little America and any supplies therein. Bird passed the request along to Alan and his Taylor, who supplied Wilkins with a detailed map of the layout of the base. Here you go ahead. Hey, we have some ice blubber just on the channel we passed. Please say again. Here, uh, just on the channel we just passed. Wilkins wrote to Bird requesting information about the state of Little America. Is there another channel or some ice in the channel? No, it's just here uh, in the channel we just went through. Oh, sweet. Nice. Wilkins wrote to Bird requesting information about... And, uh, and, uh, all well up there? Sorry, say again? Wilkins wrote to Bird requesting information. Wilkins wrote. Fuck me. Oxygen. It was oxygen. 
Wilkins wrote to Bird requesting information about the state of Little America and any supplies therein. Bird passed the request along to Alan Ennis Taylor, who supplied Wilkins with a detailed map of the... Bird passed the request along to Alan Inners Taylor, who supplied Wilkins with a detailed map of the layout of the base and the remaining stores as they stood when everyone cleared out, and some supplementary notes on which parts of Little America too he thought likely to provide the best service based on what he saw of how the structures held up through the previous winter. Wilkins promoted Magnus Olsen to captain and Loritz Livag to first mate. Engineer Harold Holmbo kicked on as engineer and Bjorn Larsen remained as cabin boy, but Wilkins had to recruit a new crew for all other positions. It's early December 2019 around the Antarctic Peninsula. I'm at Orne Harbour and in the background you might hear chinstrap penguins nesting and my colleagues making ready a landing site. Oh, beautiful day. Lots of ice around the zodiac and back into it. Hollick Kenyon and Limeburner arrived in Montevideo and, on Wilkins' suggestion, took the Polar Star for the first in a proposed series of test flights intended to get them familiar with what, for bush pilots, constituted something of a hot rod airframe. This flight series ended prematurely when the engine cut out on Hollick Kenyon and the resulting forced landing landed with such force that the starboard wing received a hole where no hole should be. Meanwhile, Lincoln Ellsworth and Mary Louise and her pushy mother arrived in Rio de Janeiro aboard the Graf Zeppelin. On learning of the damage to the Polar Star, Ellsworth stayed in Brazil for a tiger hunt. I just read the books and tell you what I found out from them. I know there aren't any tigers in Brazil, but maybe you weren't looking for one anyway in a kind of South American snipe hunt. Maybe it was someone with their wires crossed over one big cat and another. In the week it took to get the Polar Star repaired and loaded, Wilkins signed on four Norwegians and three Americans to fill the remaining crew berths. Walter Lance returning as radio operator. The Wyatt Earp departed Montevideo on the 17th of October 1935, collecting Lincoln Ellsworth in Magallanes after a climbing trip and after bothering Bird with unnecessary correspondence about the state of Little America too and supplies therein. Bird responded to the request in spite of having already dealt with it when it arose from Wilkins, but Ellsworth, unhappy with the pace at which the correspondence played out, told the local press that Bird was withholding information, potentially placing those about to attempt the transcontinental flight in danger. It's not often I feel sympathy for Richard, Evelyn Bird, but in dealing with the tetchy letters of a rich boy while working the lecture groove twice a day in an attempt to pay off expedition debts must have sucked. The Wyatt Earp departed Magellanus on the 28th of October with its full expedition complement, though less competent than it had been with Balkan at the Yoke, and less able to predict weather through the deliberate exclusion of a meteorologist at Ellsworth's express instruction on account of them being problematic in preventing him doing what he wanted, when he wanted, and with less camaraderie than the original Norwegian crew generated. The language barrier and the social mores of the two distinct factions saw a deep divide between the Norwegians and the Americans. The extremely talkative expedition doctor, whose name I haven't been able to find for this third iteration of the crew, accused the laconic Norwegians of acting very clannish. The second mate took umbrage at this and punched the physician in the face. The doctor took umbrage at this and retired to his cabin, posting a notice on the door. 
For the rest of this voyage, no professional care will be extended to members of this expedition. Five days later, they found Whaler's Bay choked with loose pack ice and it took two days to get alongside the jetty and get the gamma components on shore for assembly. With the sea ice broken up and the shore snows already melting through to show the basalt, Wilkins decided to head to the Waddell Sea again. They dismantled the gamma and it went back aboard and the ship departed Deception Island on the 11th of November. Olsen investigated Dundee Island at the northern end of Antarctic Sound and Wilkins and Ellsworth, who previously dismissed it as unsuitable for no readily apparent reason, found an ideal runway surface and a space between Dundee and Joinville Islands where the Wyatt Earp could lie up with little danger from drifting pack. The national divide in the expedition crew saw an agreement that the Norwegians should handle all shipboard duties, including hoisting the airframe and fuel drums off the ship, and that the Americans would take things over once ashore. The Norwegians got their side of the deal squared away, but the Americans, poorly dressed for the conditions and unwilling to leave the shelters they erected and heated with the stoves that should have been warming the engine block of the Polar Star, which still lay in bits around the worksite, refused to do any further work until the Norwegians gave them a hand which the Norwegians refused to do because that wasn't the agreement. Wilkins interceded and received an agreement that the Norwegians would lead the shore work and show the Americans how to get shit done in the cold on the proviso that all instructions came from Sir Hubert and no one else. Olsen, having seen how the dilatory, ignorant and arrogant Ellsworth got everyone's back up, kept Ellsworth's influence out of the loop by this mechanism. They assembled the Polar Star and Hollick Kenyon took it for a test flight. Olsen recounts Sir Hubert Wilkins giving him the long promised flight in the Polar Star at about this point in proceedings, flying as far as Snow Hill Island. It's nice that three years after joining the project as second pilot, Olsen finally got to fly the machine he carried so far. Wilkins reprised the simplified navigation instructions he generated the previous year and took Ellsworth through them step by step. Follow the Graham Land coast to the Stephenson Strait, which isn't a strait but we'll address that in episodes about the BGLE, then follow a series of timed magnetic compass bearings with the variation already factored in based on the projected position each stage of the flight would carry them to across unknown areas, after which they should pick up the shoreline of the Ross Sea and spot Roosevelt Island the final waypoint marking their path to Little America. Navigation for dummies. He even gave them a backup plan involving taking off at 8am Greenwich Mean Time, so the sun would act as a compass for them from noon onwards. If they kept the sun forward of the starboard wing from midday, they couldn't help but hit the 500 mile wide target of the Ross Sea and contact navigate over that relatively well known geography from there. He also gave Ellsworth detailed written instructions on contingencies should the aircraft be forced down at different stages in the flight, all of them unlikely to lead to survival at all, at all but the very earliest or very latest stages, but at least thought out to the nth possible degree. The forward compartment of the aircraft, Wilkins packed with five weeks of trail rations, primer stove and fuel, tent and spare clothing and a disassembled sled. The Polar Star carried a 100 watt radio powered by a dynamo worked off the aircraft's engine or, on the ground, by a small petrol powered generator and a hand cranked 15 watt trail radio unit similar to that used by Richard Bird at Bolling Advance Base. Ellsworth carried with him, as his talismans, 
Wyatt Earp's cartridge belt and wedding ring, an ox shoe he found in Death Valley, and the flags of various clubs he belonged to. All good. Thank you. Ellsworth carried with him his talismans, Wyatt Earp's cartridge belt and wedding ring, an ox shoe he found in Death Valley, and the flags of various clubs he belonged to. The photographs with the flags arranged by the Gamma look impressive until you read them. I can understand the National Geographic Society flag, but the Yale University pennant and the New York Athletic Club flag have me baffled. Were shot putters in New York really gunning that he should open up vast swathes of previously unseen geography? Universities will take credit for whatever good anyone who ever attended them and distance themselves from any similarly subsequent crimes. But did Yale really have a stake in Ellsworth's success? Or did he just have a pennant and a penchant for waving as many flags as he could wave? His studies at Yale didn't go well, and he shifted to Columbia, so it's not like he even constituted a Yale graduate. They loaded the plane, fueled up, climbed in, and started their takeoff run on the morning of the 19th of November. And then they pulled up because the Gamma couldn't unstick from the runway. They tried again on the slightly colder morning of the following day, and this time the Gamma got airborne. Then the fuel gauge glass cracked, only the intact plastic scratch-resistant cover preventing fuel flooding the cockpit and lightly bringing the flight to a fiery end. Pollock Kenyon returned to Dundee Island, landing three hours after taking off. Line burner swapped out the fuel gauge and they tried a third time on the 21st, and this time they were away good and proper. Four hours after taking off, the Gamma approached the point of Wilkins first south in the Lockheed Vega and passed over Hurstland, the last place Wilkins sighted and named. The next thousand nautical miles comprised unseen territory and Ellsworth waxed lyrical in his notes about the mountains he saw and named, while Hollick Kenyon kept the polar star climbing to give those same mountains some headroom. They entered cloud and noticed rocks just a few hundred feet below in a momentary gap. The clouds, likely forming through condensation due to dynamic lift around the rising land, shrouded gamma-eating mountain peaks. Hollick Kenyon pushed the throttle forward and the gamma higher, levelling out above a cloud layer at 12,000 feet. No mountain tops in sight, but more and higher cloud layers on the horizon. Five hours out, Hollick Kenyon turned east, but didn't explain why. Frantic, Ellsworth yelled for an explanation, but the Canadian just shook his head. An hour later, out over the Weddell Sea, which lay unseen below the clouds, but also unlikely to feature mountain peaks hiding in those clouds, Hollick Kenyon turned north, confirming Ellsworth's fear. Another flight aborted. And after he clearly stipulated that they should land and wait out bad weather, rather than turning back. Ellsworth stormed away from the aircraft after it came to a halt, as usual. Hollick Kenyon told Wilkins, that the headwinds they encountered required he burn too much fuel per hour to keep to Balkan's planned consumption curve. He couldn't slow down, or the navigation plan fell apart. Then he burnt even more fuel climbing to 12,000 feet to clear the previously unknown mountains. It didn't matter if they did land to see out the weather. The Gamma didn't have enough fuel to cover the distances, and that's all there was to the matter. Ellsworth announced they would try again the following day with Limeburner at the Oak. 
Wilkins tried to dissuade him, but the hot and dunderheaded money bags would not be swayed. Hollick Kenyon fronted him and told him in no uncertain terms that the new arrangement suited him just fine. Ellsworth cooled down and saw reason. Hollick Kenyon made the correct choices. Hollick Kenyon was the more experienced pilot and knew the route as far as the newly named Eternity Range. Hollick Kenyon would be allowed into the grace of his presence in the Gamma once more, but, quote, next time we won't turn back, unquote. I don't know if that statement constituted an affirmation or an attempt at generating a standing order from the ether. Don't know what Ellsworth thought he might do from the rear cockpit without any flight controls or the first idea about how to fly or navigate the machine he somehow intended resting control from the actual pilot of, if it comprised the latter. On the morning of the 23rd, they tried a fourth time, getting airborne, four minutes shy of a perfect 0800 GMT start. Two and a half hours in, flying at 126 knots into a 15 knot headwind, Hollick Kenyon calculated the flight would take 20 hours and that the Gamma, at the present RPM, held enough fuel for 19 hours. Given that the aircraft got lighter as it burnt through the fuel, the hourly consumption for a given indicated airspeed would decrease over time, but it would be a near-run thing if they made it to the Ross Ice Barrier coast, and with absolutely no reserve in hand. Leave it there for now, time to make the donuts. And if there's been any alteration in sound quality, it's because I'm using my hat as a wind baffle today instead of one of my socks. Enjoy. Useful Island, December 7th. Looking south, down the Gurlash, completely ringed by the mountains of the peninsula and Anvers Island. Whew. Bit blurry today. Three hours in, Hollick Canyon radioed they lay too far east and updated Wilkins with the compass heading he mentally arithmeticed would get them back on course. The navigator, oblivious to the course correction, continued taking photographs with his Leica and updating the photo log he intended would serve as part of the geographical record of his discoveries. Three and a half hours into the flight, Hollick Kenyon sighted Cape Eilson. You don't have to be quiet. Oh, it's okay, I was just listening. <laughs> the headwind increased. They still lay too far east and about an hour behind the navigation schedule. Pollock Canyon brained a new course correction and climbed the gamma to 13,000 feet in hopes of finding more favourable air currents burning fuel in the climb and putting them in deficit in the constantly revising fuel consumption calculations. Six hours into the flight and two hours behind the navigation schedule, they passed over the last of the eternity range and Ellsworth got a geography boner about seeing new ground once more. So fuel concerns be damned, hey? Hollick Kenyon passed Ellsworth a note. It is opening up nicely ahead. Better keep that camera and sextant busy, hey? which is Canadian polite speak for Hey dumbass, you haven't taken a single damn sighting in six hours and we're trying to cross a thousand nautical miles of the unknown here so quit with the Kodak moments long enough to do the job it says you do on the expedition documentation and work out where the fuck we are if my rough translating skills are anything to go by. With the nun attacks less common and lower Hollick Canyon brought the gamma down to 10,000 feet and found the previously persistent headwind all but gone. Another recalculation of fuel consumption they still lay well behind the navigation schedule and with Ellsworth unable or unwilling to take a sighting and all but saying so out loud by passing his pilot a note asking at what point they would pass out of the claimed but unseen part of the Falkland Islands dependency 
at which point Ellsworth intended dropping an American flag in a territorial claim gambit, it lay on Hollick Canyon to keep running the numbers as best he could. Trying to keep fuel consumption, speed over ground, time and magnetic variation in hand as they plugged along at 120 knots indicated airspeed. Nine hours in and still not definitely out from under the projected British thumb of the Falkland Islands dependency claim, Ellsworth chucked his flag out the window and named the region they flew over James W. Ellsworth Land. At the 10 hour mark, he sighted mountains he named the Sentinel Range, the central peak receiving the name Mount Mary Louise Ulmer. After 10 and a half hours, Hollick Canyon sighted water sky ahead. Alarmed that they should be approaching a coast that soon, Ellsworth got off his navigational arse and took a sextant shot his calculations placing them much further south than they should have been. An hour later, the water sky disappeared without ever receiving sufficient explanation. Another hour beyond that, when Wilkins' navigation plan indicated they should have departed the plateau and begun passing over the Ross Ice Barrier, they remained at 8,000 feet, with no sign of the snows dropping away any time soon. Water sky showed to starboard and mountains to port. With no idea where he was, certain knowledge that Ellsworth also didn't know where they were, and no fat in the system by which to search for Little America, if they even found the Ross Ice Barrier margin, Hollick Canyon landed the Polar Star on the plateau at 6,500 feet above mean sea level, so they could fix their position. Without any features on the surface to give him a sense of height above the terrain, Hollick Canyon had to throttle back, extend the landing flaps, and hold the Polar Star level and on the glide slope until the skis met the snow. The resulting hard landing buckled the gamma's aluminium skin behind the engine mounts, but they were down safe. They drained the oil from the engine block and applied the gust locks to the control surfaces. Hollick Kenyon consulted his flight notes and made a dead reckoning calculation of their position, while Ellsworth took his sextant shot and consulted the almanac to pass out their actual position. The two results lay at 400 nautical mile odds. Ellsworth made further sextant shots and calculations, and the resulting values spread themselves across the map. Unable to raise Wilkins with a hand-cranked radio, unwilling to run the engine to work the larger radio unit, and tired after 14 hours in the cockpit, they erected their tent and got their heads down. After 10 hours in their sleeping bags, Ellsworth took another sextant shot, this time finding their position 600 nautical miles from that derived from Hollick Kenyon's figures. As they prepped the Polar Star for flight, Ellsworth named the featureless expanse they stood on the Hollick Kenyon Plateau. They got airborne, but whiteout conditions forced another landing after just half an hour on the magnetic course they decided on. They spent two days at this second camp, still unable to raise anyone with the radio and still uncertain which way Little America lay. They got airborne on the 26th of November, but only flew for 50 minutes before a blizzard on the horizon forced another landing, still well above 6,000 feet. They dug trenches for the Gamma's ski gear, then dragged the aircraft forward to rest with its wings flushed to the snow surface, hoping to avoid the fate of Balkan and Gould's Fokker Universal in similar circumstances. They erected their tent alongside, climbing into their sleeping bags as the blizzard hit them. They spent another two days in their tent before the wind abated enough that they could attempt getting a message out by radio. They strung the aerial on bamboo poles and brought the generator into their tent to warm it up over the cooker. The generator ran a few minutes before the magneto quit, 
but Hollick Kenyon managed to get their location away at the scheduled listening time. They cranked the trail set to life, hoping to pick up a reply, but the gears on the crank handle stripped in the cold. Curious as to why Ellsworth's astronomically derived positions lay so far from his own and each other, examined the sextant to find the index mirror, the one right, fixed... We're good, yes. Thank you! Useful Island, December 16th. <sighs> you can adjust an index mirror in the field, and Hollick Kenyon did exactly that, using the bubble to establish a horizon and fixing the index mirror in place with the adjustment grub screw, when the arm showed an angle of zero degrees. The wind dropped after four days. They cut snow blocks to make a windbreak for their tent and used the sextant to fix their position finding themselves on course, but 650 miles from their destination. The fine drift snow deposited by the storm covered the gamma and filled it through the tiny gaps really fine powdery snow seems to find in even the best sealed unit. Broad-shouldered Hollick Kenyon couldn't fit far down into the tail end of the gamma, so it fell to Ellsworth to scrape the snow out with a tin mug, while the Canadian dug away the accumulated snow outside the airframe. Ellsworth described this as the worst day of his life, Given he only ever experienced a handful of bad days, excepting his depressive episodes, I don't think this much of an assessment. I'd swap head down and bum up in a cramped space in the cold for 12 hours over large swathes of my time in hospital, in the trauma cleaning industry, in factories, and in palliative care. In short, fucking diddums. Hollick Kenyon spent a day cleaning fine powder snow from the instruments and controls in the forward cockpit, and the pair agreed that they should take off immediately after a good sleep regardless of what the next day brought them. On the 3rd of December, they dug fresh snow clear of the gamma and worked to extricate the ski gear from the slots they lowered them into. They dug ramps forward for the skis and a propeller-wide arc forward of the fuselage, unloaded the aircraft to lighten it and lit a stove under the engine. Hollick Kenyon removed the gust locks, heated the oil and got it into the sump, pulled the prop through a couple of times to get the precious bodily fluid circulating, and tried the electric starter. Nothing. He took the batteries out of the radio and used them to boost the power to the starter. The prop turned, but the engine didn't fire. Then he tried it again. And then again. And again. And the engine started! He taxied the Polar Star up the slope out of the holes and, instead of taking off and leaving Ellsworth to the cold and lonely death he deserved and seemed to actually desire, Hello. Cheerio. With the Polar Star just light enough that it might make it to Little America on the remaining fuel, he shut down and restowed the gear. They were on the cusp of striking the tent when a storm swept in. They drained the oil, applied the gust locks and hunkered down again. Jeff Maynard pulled an absolute cracker of a quote from Ellsworth's diary about this moment in time, and it really does sum up the man's merit neatly. Quote, Looks as though we are 650 miles from the Bay of Wales with no hope of getting there. God forbid this airplane stuff anyway. One is so helpless when something goes wrong. I'll give you a moment to see if you can imagine the coda I wrote to that sentence. I have to shout to make the next part give the emotion that I need it to, so don't be alarmed. <clears throat> like someone not learning to navigate in the 10 years that have been limping themselves onto expeditions in the role of navigator. And I put that in all caps in the script, so the deaf can enjoy my anger too. 
The following day, they finally got moving after digging away the accumulated snow and repeating all that goes into getting a piston engine aircraft ready for flight in Antarctica. The plateau fell away. They flew over the barrier. After four hours on a compass course, they landed to take a sextant shot, alert that they didn't have enough fuel to reach the coast, let alone to waste time in running a search pattern looking for Little America. They needed to be bang on course when the fuel ran out to stand any chance of reaching Bird's former base on foot, the only available outcome that could see them survive. They took off again after 10 hours on the barrier, sighting Roosevelt Island after an hour in the air. They flew alongside the island and sighted a water sky and then water. And then the fuel gave out and everything went quiet but for the whistle of air over wings. Hollick Kenyon made a dead stick landing two miles northwest of the northwest extremity of Roosevelt Island after flying 2,340 nautical miles from Dundee Island in a total flying time of 20 hours and 15 minutes. Elephant Point, mid-December. Got nesting southern giant petrels nearby and the elephant seal wieners are practicing their fighting style. And where Kung Fu generally recognizes mantis, snake, crane and tiger, this is an all new style I'm labeling blubber slug. And it's fucking hilarious. I'm gonna go try and get some photographs. They spent two days resting by the polar star. They dug the gamma's ski undercarriage into the snow to get the wing flush with the barrier surface. While at Kenyon used the dregs of fuel from the lowest recesses of the gamma's fuel tanks to run a patched together generator, but they never heard reply to their broadcasts on the agreed listening schedule. On the 8th of January, they headed toward what looked like snow-covered buildings. Hollick Kenyon calculated they landed about four miles short of Little America, but after two hours of snowshoeing and the apparent buildings appearing no closer, they returned to the Gamma to rest. On the 9th, they packed the sled with provisions, but, figuring they would shortly enjoy a rest in Bird's former base, left the tent erected by the Polar Star. After nine hours slogging in slushy conditions, they found the buildings were snow hummocks, realised they'd left the sextant behind, and therefore couldn't work out which way to head to find Little America from there, and slogged back to their tent to rest, leaving the sledge in place at the hummocks. On the 11th, after tending to Ellsworth's frostbitten foot, they returned to their sled with tent and sextant 
and carried on north. They walked a compass course through whiteout conditions and on the 13th stumbled onto the barrier edge, but with an insufficiently precise sextant couldn't work out if they should follow that coast east or west to find Little America. On the 15th, with both men exhausted and stove fuel running low, they chose a direction in the knowledge that this was a 50-50 bet with life and death consequences. 15 miles trekking west and they came across one of Bird's abandoned citrons and the Versamer end of the Misery Trail. The trail led them to the snowed-in remnants of past occupation. They broke in through a skylight and found themselves in the radio hut. They set themselves up in the adjacent bunkhouse, lit the stove with the coal left handily beside it and slept the clock twice around. Digging about near their new home, they found enough coal to keep them sorted for a few weeks, some gasoline for the Primus, hardtack, powdered coffee and lots of malted milk tablets from Horlicks. A tin of jam and a tin of marmalade handy in the bunkhouse provided variety in their diet, but one of the biggest reliefs was melting enough snow for a wash and a shave, though they had me at powdered coffee. They settled in for the wait, likely to be a long one given the distance the Wyatt Earp had to cover and the Seat had to cover it in. They pitched the tent down by the tractors and ran orange streamers from its peak to attract attention from anyone scanning the coast with binoculars or telescope. Until his frostbitten feet caused him too much pain to walk, Ellsworth spent his days making the six mile trek to the shore and back to watch for a ship, while Hollick Kenyon found his entertainment reopening tunnels and breaking through skylights to scavenge more coal and tasty morsels, and bully beef, from the remnants of the Birdian occupation. He found plenty to read, but Ellsworth left his glasses behind in the Polar Star, sort of like the guy in that episode of The Scary Door. Frustrated by his companion's stolid silence, Ellsworth whined, Don't you ever talk? The pilot replied, I have a bad temper. I prefer not to. Dude. Respect. Seals began showing up on the sea ice, indicating a change in the pack ice and promising open leads, and then clear waters, in the coming months. That was a seal. A month after arriving at Little America and pouting at the Wyatt Earp being two weeks overdue on Wilkins' estimate of five weeks to cover the distance between Dundee Island and the Bay of Wales, Ellsworth noted the arrival of the first penguins for the season, one flopping onto the skylight above his bunk. At Dundee Island, all Wilkins knew was they received the last broadcast from the Polar Star eight hours after takeoff on the 23rd of November. If the flight ended eight hours out, the aviators held little chance of walking to the coast. If they flew on without radio contact long enough to employ the walk-out-to-Sharko-land option and reached the goal of Mount Monique, the Wyatt Earp served them best by heading west to collect them. If they flew onto the Ross Ice Barrier, the Wyatt Earp served them best heading straight to Little America. As it stood, the Wyatt Earp couldn't head anywhere, as the westerly set of the Weddell Sea and its pack ice saw them trapped at Dundee Island. Wilkins radioed Marie-Louise... Easy for you to say. Wilkins radioed Mary Louise Ellsworth with what little he knew. She received the news as stoically as someone likely to inherit even vaster wealth than she already possessed should do if they want to maintain some degree of public dignity, and requested that Admiral Byrd go in search of her husband. Byrd demurred. Stung by the public mud slung by Ellsworth and busy with his lecture-based debt and busy with his lecture-based debt reduction scheme, he offered to petition Douglas Mawson as the man to effect such a rescue effort. 
Mawson didn't have a lot of respect for Wilkins, let alone the rich boy Wilkins launched across the continent. In correspondence with Richard Casey, he stated clearly that he felt all responsibility lay with Wilkins. Casey, still harbouring Antarctic territorial ambitions for the Commonwealth, saw Ellsworth's disappearance as an opportunity to demonstrate both governmental and practical administration of the Ross Dependency in the face of repeated American incursions. He turned to John King Davis and found the old salt more kindly disposed than Mawson. Davis reasoned that the aviators either reached Little America alive or died in the attempt, dismissing the Charcoland egress as an impossibility. Unfortunately for Casey and Davis, Australia didn't field an ice-worthy ship at that point. Not one which is pretty shabby for a nation that so recently threw its aegis over a quarter of the ice continent. With the Discovery 2 at work off the coast of Enderby Land, south of the Indian Ocean at the time, Davis recommended Casey start working the diplomatic channels to see if the Discovery Institute vessel might be retasked for a rescue mission. Bureaucracy can sludge things up pretty badly, but when someone knows the system, as Casey did, and can couch a case that readily reveals benefits to everyone up and down the chain, as Casey did, it can get stuff done in ways that modes with less paperwork and red tape can sometimes struggle to achieve. In London, the matter bounced between the Dominion's office and the Colonial office until Commander Leonard Hill, Captain Nelson's replacement aboard Discovery 2, received crisp new orders to head to Melbourne to receive two aircraft and aircrew before heading south to the Bay of Wales. No one aboard the ship knew the whole story, but being British, they took their bureaucracy decreed orders at face value and got on with the 5,000 nautical mile transit to Melbourne. One account has one of the ship's officers dashing to the quarterdeck waving a telegram and bringing a trawl shot to a halt, yelling to the scientists and deckhands, hey, just a moment, we're going to Melbourne. We have to find Lincoln Ellsworth. James Marr, Shackleton's Boy Scout, Discovery Institute researcher and crew member aboard the previous Discovery during the Banzari, numbered among the complement that stowed the sampling gear, and this is far from his last appearance in this series. His response to the interruption went unrecorded, but I know how I would have reacted. I don't care which billionaire goes missing, preventing me getting my samples will piss me off. In addition to securing the use of the ship, Casey's efforts at playing the bureaucracy game saw an agreement from New Zealand to bunker and victual the ship in Dunedin to give the Discovery 2 maximum range and time on station in the Ross Sea. Time magazine published some copy insinuating that Ellsworth deliberately silenced his radio to build up hype for his expedition. Bant Balkin spoke up in defence of his former employer, which surprised a lot of people, but which fits with my understanding of the Norwegian. He didn't like Ellsworth, but he wasn't going to let gossip mongers damn another person with that sort of unfounded libel. Though radio operator Lance did tend to his radio at the appointed listening times aboard the Wyatt Earp, the message Hollick Kenyon broadcast from the Third Plateau campsite never reached his receiver. The wind in the Weddell Sea shifted, and the Wyatt Earp escaped its entrapment at Dundee Island, once more taking refuge between Snow Hill Island and James Ross Island, no closer to escaping Antarctic Sound, but at least not in danger from pressure. Wilkins requested Charles McVeigh, Mary Louise lawyer, that he try to source another Northrop Gamma and get it on site at Magellanus as quickly as possible. Wilkins intended either using the aircraft in searching for his missing aviators along the coasts they were most likely to show up on, or in an attempt to follow their flight path in hope of finding them somewhere along it. 
as a very desperate last measure, he figured he could use another gamma to lay depots along likely egress routes from the most likely landing or crash sites he discovered along that path. All pretty long shot stuff, but the man had Ellsworth's wealth at his disposal and very few other productive options available to him. He left a note outlining his intended movements and actions at Nordenwell's hut and departed as soon as the ice gave Olsen an opening, reaching Deception Island after two days steaming. Wilkins received word. Mary Louise and her New York acquaintances were arranging an amphibian airframe. No, wait, that plan fell through. Wilkins received word again. A replacement gamma was on its way from New Jersey. Owned by Marion Guggenheim and flown by Russell Thor, a racing pilot and later test pilot for Douglas Aircraft Company, and with airmail pilot and Marine Corps aviator Bill Klenke as mechanic. No, wait, that one crashed in Atlanta, Georgia during its takeoff run. The aircraft repairable and the crew unharmed, but unable to continue in the short term. Wilkins received word again. A single-seat Gamma 2A, owned by Texaco and used extensively by Frank Hawkes in setting a number of point-to-point speed records, was on its way to Magellanus. Olsen set course for Chile, but once in port, Wilkins received word that delivery pilot, airmail legend and airline pioneer Dick Merrill, after a record-breaking 40-hour transit across North and South America, refused to bring the second Gamma any further than Rio de Gallegos in Argentina because Magellanus did not have an airport. It does now, and the city is called Punto Arenas once more. Wilkins hired a car, loaded it with the Gamma's floats and lime burner, and drove the 130 miles to Rio de Gallegos. They fitted the floats and lime burner flew to Magellanus, landing on the harbour while Wilkins drove back again. Olsen got the Texaco 20 hoisted aboard and dismantled, ready for the Southern Ocean. Another Gamma, this one a 2D model, headed south to help, but I can only find sketchy details about it. I know it was also owned by Texaco, and Frank Hawkes flew it across South America to position it for Antarctic operations, but René Francelon's McDonnell Douglas Aircraft Since 1920, Volume 1, notes Ellsworth and Hollick Kenyon as being found before Hawkes could get the machine to Antarctica. I don't know what to make of this, but if it's correct that Hawkes took the Gamma 2D south to help, then that means four of the eight civilian Gammas Northrop produced became involved in the Ellsworth expedition and its repercussions. Frasselon's book notes the Gamma 2D as returning to the USA by ship. Knowing Mawson never missed an opportunity to shit-can him, Wilkins stated, both publicly and in private correspondence, that the Australian government did not need to send a ship and aircraft. He had it all under control. He ordered Olsen to head for Sharkoland, confident that if his aviators did reach Little America, the delay caused in checking for them in the one other site they might appear, no matter how slight the odds, would not affect their survival. He might have liked to skip Sharko land and pip the Australian rescue at the post, but the idea of leaving potential survivors to die of starvation on the shores of Mary Island simply to save face in the eyes of Mawson, Davis and Casey never occurred to him. Wilkins was dutiful and his duty lay in checking the options he made clear to Ellsworth in the contingency plan instructions. The Wyatt Earp reached the area of interest near Charcot Land on the 28th of December, but 60 miles of sea ice prevented any sighting of the shore, and rough seas precluded getting the Texaco 20 airborne. They spent three days waiting for conditions to improve, but the weather continuing foul and the ice showing no signs of going anywhere, Wilkins pulled the pin and headed for the Ross Sea. There's an elephant seal wiener coming in to listen.
Could you one of the earless seals? Nice coffee. Get it in your head. Ah, oh, fuck it. Starting to snow. I'm going to pull the pin myself. Meanwhile, in Australia, two weeks after Commander Hill received his new orders, the Discovery 2 came alongside the Government Wharf in Williamstown in Port Phillip and received two weeks of modifications in order to receive two Royal Australian Air Force aircraft. A small and short-range de Havilland 60 Gypsy Moth and a larger and longer-legged Westland Wapiti, both mounted on floats but with their wheeled undercarriage and bespoke ski gear worked up at Point Cook workshops in reserve. The Moth featured a reserve fuel tank to increase its range, but the lack of radio gear precluded operations over the horizon. The Wapiti featured both a VHF and a short wave radio, a sun compass and a drift indicator, and could therefore serve in over the horizon operations at high latitudes. Both aircraft were painted with aluminium dope, a silver finish in use on most RAAF airframes during peacetime. They were slated to receive a coat of yellow paint during the sea voyage to make them easy to spot against a white background, but I don't know if that ever happened because there's no mention of it in the RAAF account of the voyage and all the available photographs are black and white. And that's most frustrating for someone with an interest in making scale models of Antarctica-related airframes. Flight Lieutenant Eric Douglas, last mentioned in the episodes about the Banzari, and Flying Officer Alistair Murdoch of the RAAF, joined as chief pilot and second pilot respectively, and eight other RAAF personnel sailed as support staff for the aviation program. The previous year, the US Navy helped in the search for Australian aviation hero Charles Ulm, last mentioned in the series as buying Wilkins' used Fokker trimotor in company with Charles Kingsford Smith, after he disappeared in the Pacific while trying to establish an air service between San Francisco and Sydney. The Australian public followed the search efforts closely and felt that in sending a ship to Antarctica to look for a missing American, they were repaying a national social debt owed to the USA. The Discovery 2 departed Melbourne on Christmas Eve with a lot of goodwill and donated victuals, stopped to bunker fuel in Dunedin and reached the pack ice in the Ross Sea on the 8th of January. Commander Hill couldn't progress further south for a week. The Discovery 2 was ice strengthened, not an ice breaker, and the crew spent many hours poling ice away from the rudder to protect the most delicate and important bits of the ship's undersides. Eric Douglas got them off airborne from a narrow lead near the ship, but couldn't spot an obvious passage to aim for any nearer than 30 miles. Wilkins radioed that the Wyatt Earp reached the Ross Sea pack and that everything was under control, but rather than dissuading those aboard the Discovery 2 from continuing, the news energised them. They felt themselves in a race because humans. They were in a race because Colonial Office and Richard Casey. A second flight the following day, taking off from choppy waters, found the nearest open water 40 miles from the ship. On landing, Douglas couldn't get his moth under the hook because the prevailing wind made keeping the ship clear of the sea ice presented an impossible set of angles to solve for retrieving the aircraft. He dropped Murdoch off in the ship's tender and flew to a more sheltered patch of open water and waited for the ship to catch him up. Antarctic aviation is hard work at the best of times, but this sort of thing makes Balkan's reticence about amphibious operations look pretty sound. 
The Discovery 2 broke through the pack belt and into clear waters on the 15th of January, cruising east along the barrier while the Wyatt Earp remained fighting it out with the ice flows. On the 15th, someone spotted the orange streamers on the shoreside tent. The ship sounded its horn. No movement on shore. The ship fired maroon rockets that exploded loudly and brightly a thousand feet in the air, but these also received no response from the shore. Douglas and Murdoch launched the moth for a reconnaissance flight, figuring that if no sign of the aviators showed at Little America, they would then launch the Wapiti for a search over the potential flight path of the Polar Star. With sea smoke indicating the onset of the big freeze, the pilots tried to keep the takeoff run short to avoid weighing the small aircraft down with frozen spray. As it was, the half mile it took to get airborne saw the machine flying tail heavy due to the weight of ice at the empennage. Douglas and Murdoch flew the moth to Little America cautiously, as the glare of the barrier merged with the glare of the clouds and made discerning the horizon difficult. Douglas likened it to flying along in a bowl of cream, but I don't know how he gained experience in that particular circumstance. What the pilots thought might be crevasses resolved into the shadows of the radio masts and they circled Little America to look for signs of life. Drawn up by the noise, Hollick Kenyon climbed out of the skylight and waved. The aviators dropped a parcel containing a letter from Commander Hill instructing the residents to make toward the shore where a landing party would meet them, and some chocolate and a container of anti-scorbutic orange syrup. Ellsworth's feet, still not coming good after the damage his month and a half in stupid footwear caused him, hurt too much for him to walk out. Hollick Kenyon grabbed his personal belongings and began the trek, meeting the Discovery 2 shore party halfway. In spite of assuring Ellsworth of his return within three hours, Hollick Kenyon assured the sledges that the American was fine and asked to be taken to the ship. A bit bloody late in the piece to try to abandon the man, I think, particularly given the excellent opportunities the Canadian already passed up. Shaved, bathed and fed, Hollick Kenyon, laconic throughout his time in company with Ellsworth, became loquacious in company with the ship's crew keeping them up late with stories and enjoying a few whiskies and sodas and reassuring Commander Hill that there really was no reason to set out to collect his colleague immediately. A second sledge party set out for Little America the following morning, finding Ellsworth in his bunk in a funk. They rested up, ate everything in sight, stripped the building of the sort of weird souvenirs people grab when there's no gift shop but lots of everyday items in a manner likely to draw gasps of shock and promote much pearl clutching among members of the Antarctic Heritage Trust bundled the billionaire out of the hatch and got underway back to the ship, towing Ellsworth on their sledge. He borrowed some reading glasses and the ship's doctor attended to his feet. A radio message went out announcing the safe recovery of Ellsworth and Hollick Kenyon. Ten days later, the Wyatt Earp, its stars and stripes flying at half-mast, tied up on the barrier edge and lowered a launch to fetch its aviators. Hollick Kenyon and Ellsworth went aboard their ship and related the details of their journey. Ellsworth commented to Wilkins on the flag at half-mask as being premature. Wilkins responded, You flatter yourself. We just heard on the radio that King George V has passed away. The King is dead. Long live the King. In this case, King Edward VIII, who I discussed as a Nazi wanker in episode 86. Ellsworth headed back to the more comfortably appointed Discovery 2, leaving instructions that Wilkins should collect Wyatt Earp's cartridge belt from the Polar Star. Someone revived the abandoned Citroen half-track and Wilkins led a party over the 16 miles to the Gamma, 
making a straight line towards his goal by navigating effectively because he fucking could. Lineburner pumped a drum's worth of fuel into the tanks of the Polar Star and spent two hours warming the engine before starting up. He taxied the Gamma back to the coast, towing a sledge which carried the rest of the party behind him. As they made ready to dismantle the airframe and hoist it aboard the Wyatt Earp, the billionaire arrived in a launch from the Discovery 2 to collect his reading glasses, cartridge belt and flags and to effectively tell the expedition team to kiss his ass. He was heading home on the Discovery 2 which departed the Bay of Wales shortly thereafter. Commander Hill visited Franklin Island and the Balleny Islands, the first time anyone called at the Balleny since Scott's sighting, on the way north to science a bit and really reinforce that the Ross Dependency was Commonwealth Territory. The moth made a final flight to reconnoitre a path through the pack ice belt and the RAAF crew dogged it down and removed its wings for the Southern Ocean crossing. The Australian government, having stuck its neck out to reinforce its association with Antarctica on the cheap, made a big fuss about the safe return of the Antarctic heroes. Ellsworth, eager to assert his expedition's independence but still appreciating the efforts made on his behalf, acted far more graciously in Melbourne than he ever did in Christchurch or Dunedin, and attended a number of formal dinners and welcoming ceremonies, where he got his ego buffed just the way he liked it, receiving congratulations from Sir Douglas Mawson and allowing John King Davis to act as his host and guide during his visit. The government flew Ellsworth to Canberra for lunch with Prime Minister Joseph Lyons, who served up the platitudes the dilatory dilettante wanted his whole life to hear. Quote, Mr Ellsworth was one of the most intrepid of modern explorers. Whereas he might have led a life of ease, he had preferred a career of usefulness and service to his country and to the world. Unquote. Ooh, that's even better than frotting yourself to ecstasy against Wyatt Earp's cartridge belt, yeah? The British government, eager not to let the Dominionist upstarts bask in all the glory, awarded Commander Hill the Order of the British Empire for his role in the rescue, where other ships' officers who braved the same seas and sometimes did far more than collect a billionaire and a pilot from a hut, or even just a big plate full of thoughts and prayers. The British Foreign Office claimed that the operation demonstrated effective administration of the Ross Dependency and a fulfilment of responsibilities to visitors to that region. Weird flex, bro. The Wyatt Earp spent six weeks on its return to Deception Island before heading up the Atlantic to reach New York, though without Wilkins aboard, as his contract stipulated. The ship arrived with the Polar Star reassembled for Harry Bruno's carefully stage-managed PR event. Ellsworth received the Silver Medal of Congress from President Roosevelt, but felt a bit put out that birds favoured overwinterers from his second Antarctic expedition received the same gong, even though they didn't lead the expedition they took part in the way that he did. The following year, he received a special gold medal for claiming 350,000 square miles of land on the behalf of the USA, which cheered him up, albeit briefly. The National Geographic Society awarded him the Hubbard Medal for his contributions to polar exploration generally. Meanwhile, Wilkins worked up maps from Hollick Kenyon's Dead Reckoning Notes and Ellsworth's photographs. 31 of them. Not the hundreds of horizontal and oblique images and thousands of vertical images Isaiah Bowman conjured with his PR circular, but the 31 happy snaps Ellsworth fired off during the course of 20 hours of flying, and not a single useful astronomical fix to give them more cartographic utility than a postcard. Placing the eternity range and its peaks, faith, hope and charity, because cliché, and the sentinel range, 
with anything better than 100-mile error bars lay beyond the data to hand, but later assessment showed Wilkins managed to at least get them within that margin of error using Hollick Kenyon's flight log. Ellsworth didn't care though. In the same way Bird didn't care about scientific data once it served as his excuse to get moving, the geographical aspects of his achievements fell by the wayside. A ghostwriter worked up Ellsworth's memoir, the text making out that the billionaire made every decision based on his own considered judgement. Wilkins barely got a mention, and the ship's crew only received job descriptions rather than names when the text mentioned them at all. Beyond Horizons is interesting as a piece of literature in that it demonstrates how far from reality you can reach if you think your version of events is the only version ever likely to come to light, and you don't mind throwing everyone else in your life under your personal bus. As an accurate record of events, I read it somewhere between Richard Bird's Alone and a half-used roll of unbleached single-ply toilet paper. Where Alone remains in print and toilet paper is even more popular, Beyond Horizons only saw one print run, so if you do get your hands on a copy, you can be assured you're wiping with a first edition. Lincoln Ellsworth, whose concern for the machine only extended as far as go get my Wyatt Earp playset cartridge belt, donated the Polar Star to the Smithsonian, and it's currently in storage at the National Air and Space Museum in Washington DC, after a long spell on display with some mounted penguins and fake snow. So, what did the transantarctic flight and the attendant voyaging reveal about Antarctica? Ellsworth spotted some islands and fjords no one saw before, sighted and named two mountain ranges, a region and a plateau. He established that the spine of mountains running down the Antarctic Peninsula and through King Edward VII land are, if not a contiguous geological feature, then at least abutting ones. Three of the fossil specimens Ellsworth collected and donated to the American Museum of Natural History featured previously unseen species. He also demonstrated that sexuality suppressed to avoid social opprobrium is bad for a person and those in their sphere of influence, and that billionaires really shouldn't have control over the lives of people because they're bad at peopling. He got the brass ring he aimed himself at off the back of others, and he only never screwed over others as much as Richard Bird did, because Ellsworth could afford to buy what Bird had to scam. Hey, just a quick off-site update. If you're in Melbourne on Saturday the 8th of February, at 4 o'clock at the Bayview Eden on Queens Road in Melbourne, there's a presentation being held by the Inari Club featuring Lee Hornsby, a helicopter pilot who flew in support of Inari projects. I'm really looking forward to attending this one because it features helicopters and Antarctica. I'll be taking along my recently completed DC-3 model to pass it along to a good home. If you can make it along and you spot me in my badly screen printed iced coffee t-shirt and you greet me with the phrase adiabatic warming, I'll buy you a drink. More Antarctica for your ears. I came across Polar Tales, which had me a bit confused. I saw Matt Allen and Antarctic Podcast mentioned in a link. I thought, it's unusual that someone would use the shortened version of my name and my middle name, and my middle name was misspelled. But it turns out, it's another High Latitudes guide called Matt Allen. Polar Tales was published by One Ocean, so I'm not sure if it's going to be an ongoing project. But the content's available and worth a listen. You can support the series financially at patreon.com forward slash ice coffee and thanks to everyone that's pledged or updated their pledge 
and thanks to those that have kicked into the PayPal account. Take care and appreciate your coffee.